Inside. Welcome to the Chopping Wood Inside podcast, the Twin Peaks podcast for conspiracy theorists and aficionados. I am your host, Murphy. Tom, are you out there somewhere? I will unlock the door for you, Murphy. Ew, you're very scary. Uh, dude, very scary, very frightening, very wonderful, tear-filled, uh, joyous uh, part 15 we just watched. Um, Tom, what do you think, man? Well, right off the bat. The scene with Nadine and Big Ed, and then when the <laughs> Otis Redding, Otis fucking Redding, one of my favorite singers of all time, and that song that was in Heaven Help Us, that movie that we saw way back when that we love so much. What a powerful, powerful emotional scene. I love that. That was pure heart. And uh, I'm not a weeping man, but because uh, it wasn't E.T. or Terms of Endearment, the only two movies I've cried um, while watching, but I was this close to tears. I loved it. Overall, fantastic episode. The convenience store, little Dicky Horn, more Audrey Horn, um, James and James and the Pokey, Green Glove. Just overall fantastic episode, and I'm looking forward to, dis- to discussing it with you, my friend. Yeah, I mean, may as well start the top. I mean, the whole Nadine showing up with the shovel, it just looked like she was on a mission to go somewhere with that shovel. Uh, and she, it's, her life has been turned around, you know, and so we didn't know what she was going to do. But uh, she talks to, to Ed and she lets Ed go free, basically after 30 years of servitude or however long they've been married. Uh, she's been enlightened, you know, and maybe she's in love with Dr. Jacoby, but she's not saying anything about it to him. But <laughs> she said, you're free, buddy. And off he goes. And that music starts. And I, my heart leapt. He's coming in, waving at, Nadine, or at Norma. He's ready to... Uh, uh, tell her he loves her. Um, I'm like at tears right when he opens the door. Of the, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> that fuckhead's there. <laughs> the boyfriend who wants to... What's his name? Walter? Yeah, Walter. Yeah. And that my heart goes crushed. And I was like, oh my God, no way. No way. And it looked for a second that like they had moved... That, she, that Norma was with him. And that Ed was going to have to sit there and be miserable. But then she decided to sell off uh, all the other chains of her diner to to Walter, which I guess was symbolic of them breaking up. Maybe they were never officially together. Who knows? But uh, boy, <laughs> after Ed said he wanted to have cyanide with his coffee, he was there. And look, his eyes closed. And it, I saw the yellow around him. And I thought about the gold orbs and the good energy of Ed. And it was almost like he was praying and meditating or something. Maybe he was just miserable and trying not to cry. But his dream came true. And she sent him off. And uh, we had the great Otis Redding uh that's the scene we've all been wanting to see for 30 years. Uh, Ed and Norma, he has to marry her. She says, yes, they're kissing. It's like wonderful. Shelly's crying. We're all crying. Even you shed a tear? The no, almost. Almost. No, I can't. No, no. I, yeah, I don't have that capacity in me anymore after many years. <laughs> you might cry of... at the end of this when it's over. Then the whole series <laughs> I think I will, right? Yeah. No, but a couple of things. First of all, with the first scene when, when Nadine is marching to the Big Ed's uh, gas farm, uh, I've noticed 
that when she was walking, the cars that were driving by her were on the other side of the road, like they should have been in Europe or something, which I find a little curious. But also, maybe they were driving around her or something because she was. That's tragic to go. No, there was a couple of cars. I don't know. Maybe it was just because of the production doesn't mean anything. I just it's just something that I spotted and also spotted. She's walking along um, the electrical wires, and then when she's talking with Ed, you can see the shadows of the wires on the ground in in the background. Now, this doesn't have really any I think deep meaningful significance to anything. I just found it a nice artistic touch and her speech. Basically letting Ed go after all these years, claiming to be a selfish bitch and 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 calling Ed a saint and holding, wielding the, the gold shovel and Ed just not letting her, you know, get off that easily. He doesn't want to, you know, he knows she, she's crazy, obviously, or has been crazy and is prone to manic fits and probably recognizes this might be, you know, a short-lived epiphany. He's not going to just go for sound, go, okay, all right, head to the double dar. He's going to give her every chance to come to her senses. And she convinces him. But like you said, I agree. There might be a little subtext there with uh, a, a budding romance with Jacoby that might lessen the sting of no longer having uh, Ed in her life anymore. And then we move on to the ballad of Ed and Norma at the double R. And, and I think you said it, said it perfectly. And just to highlight what you said, because I was going to bring it up as well, it did appear like he was, to me, meditating and maybe trying to either calm himself or maybe to will Norma to come around because obviously eventually she did. And there was this slight smile on his face at, at some point, like maybe he knew. And then that hand, I loved it. The hand just just, yes. just appears in the frame yes. and touches his shoulder. Oh, it was so warming. And then he just looks at her and says, marry me, and and they kiss, and just <laughs> bliss. And then Shelly, you look at Shelly, at least I looked at Shelly, and maybe there was some something with her thinking of Bobby. I mean, her and Bobby had this, you know, great romance, you know, 25 years earlier. We don't know the circumstances of, you know, their relationship and how it ended, and she's obviously smitten with Red right now, but maybe seeing that will make her come around to uh, you know, Bobby at some point, but there's something with their daughter Becky that we're going to talk to a little bit later that might actually dampen that a little. Yeah, maybe they'll have a double wedding. Maybe like uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll all four get married at the double R, and that'll be the last episode. But you're right; we have some disturbing, uh, you know, possibilities about Becky, which happens a couple of scenes later. Do we want to go to the next scene, which completely turned the karma because it ended? I believe like wasn't it on like blue skies, like when they were in oh. love and they cut to blue skies, and I was like. Wow, like blue skies over Twin Peaks. Like we haven't really seen that, like, you know, metaphorically, you know, and it seemed like that this, they were showing us the love and the goodness, like these three characters, even uh, Norma, uh, I mean, Nadine, like she's doing great, you know? So I think this, and it was beautiful, but then it turned very, very dark and it turned actually so dark. I'm here in Los Angeles. I could barely see the next scene because it was still daytime, <laughs> but you want to take us uh, down the dark road that we ended up on, on that, like, uh. Yeah, what do they call it? The yeah. Phantom Ride, that shot? Yeah. Right. No, just to bookend the opening scene with the the transition shots of I think the mountains and then these, you know, the blue sky and the clouds with Otis just climaxing with, you know, I'll I'll stop loving you. Is that what the song's entitled? I'll not I can't stop loving you. I can't you, stop maybe? loving you. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah. It was just it was pure joy. And then of course. We fade out, and it was the second fade out, I believe. I noticed there were like 
at least three or four fade outs. And um, we haven't had these transitions of fading in, fading out too often in this series. But I think right after Nadine and Ed's scene, it, it faded it faded out and then came back up when Ed pulled up to the double R. And then it another fade out at the end of this scene. And then coming to, I think the first, tra- the shot was the, the shot of the wires, you know, like just being yeah, like the creepy black and white, like electrical wires. Yeah. I was like, Oh, we're immediately, I was like, we're immediately back in episode eight or something. All of a sudden I thought, well, yeah, because wasn't that, I don't know if it was the same exact shot of the wires in the clues that Andy received from the firemen, but it was, certainly was very similar. And also it just different. It looked like something from like a Lynch art book, like his, you know, all the black and white photos he took. It looked a little different, but yeah. obviously mentioned the same thing. Well, there was also the Rancho Rosa logo just briefly. Last week it was black and white. I think it was the, the circle was black and then the, the filament or whatever, the light within was was white. And, and this time it was like just more gray white. So I also immediately thought, okay, here we go again. Another great, I mean, it's always going to be great, but another episode that's going to have some little fantastical elements. And here's the scene. It's the scene of Mr. C in his car drive driving down the Lost Highway. I mean, Lynch loves his POV down a dark, barren, remote highway. And we get literally 30 seconds of this POV. And then he pulls up to the Dutchman's. I'm presuming this is the place, which isn't really a place. And it's a convenience store. The convenience store. Now, did you think in part eight, when we saw that convenience store, that it was in New Mexico? Uh, yeah, and I thought that it no, no, or no, or didn't even exist potentially. It may even be like some you know creation that just like we saw in this episode, which disappeared once it, w- it was only there for a short time. So I don't think it really is real. I think it's like if, maybe it moves around and there's different entryways into it. Like was it wasn't it in Seattle at one point? And that doesn't didn't seem to be Seattle there. I wonder where that was supposed to be. Vegas I, or Montana? I don't know. Well, he's in Western Montana, presumably making his way to. To Twin Peaks, but you're exactly right about Seattle in Firewalk with Me in the Missing Pieces. Jeffries goes on a little bit more about Judy in the Ring and the meeting above the convenience store, which we cut to where we see Bob and and the Woodsman and the Jumpy Man, etc. And he says in the Missing Pieces, it was in Seattle at Judy's. I think is what he said. So we'll go into this scene a little bit more, but so I, and there were trees around the convenience store. So I don't think obviously he's in New Mexico, but you very well may be right. This might be a place that can appear in many different locations. But if you had to, you know, hold me to an answer, I would say it is that convenience store in Seattle's that Jeffries did reference in Firewalk With Me. But just a couple things briefly before he gets there, that POV shot, there was a sign like a road marker in the distance, and he's got close. Yeah. The first thought was, did you think, welcome to Twin Peaks? I thought I was going to say, welcome to Twin Peaks. I was like, Tom's going to nail it, but nope, didn't do it. Nope, we it I thought, or at least I thought I was going to say, like, welcome to Washington State or something like that. Yeah, something. And then there was the Pendrecki music cue as well. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't know where he was going, obviously. Uh, but when I heard that and then saw the convenience store, it's just a perfect marriage of, of sound I screamed. and screamed. <laughs> I, I yelled out loud. I was like, cause I was like, what the fuck? Like, how's this possible? Like all of a sudden he's, lo- I mean, it didn't seem like he had to do much to get there. You know what I mean? Usually when you have to go through a portal or go through the, the sycamore trees or, you know, you have to go out and he just basically pulled over and boom, there it was, you know, like creating manifesting itself without him having to even really get out of the car. Like the, the woodsman, one of them was waiting for him outside. 
Like exactly. He had, he, they knew he was coming. Well, he led him to the staircase that leads to the what above the convenience store, which you know was referenced in Firewalk with Me. So the woodsman is waiting there for him. Obviously, knows he's you know arriving and leads him up, and then he goes into I believe a room. And the first thing we notice, or at least I noticed, and I'm sure you did as well was the familiar wallpaper. That's Laura's yes. painting. Yes, the wallpaper, dude. So that's very bizarre. It confirms the fact that somehow that painting was a painting of the convenience store, of the inside the convenience store that she's had. Who gave her that painting? Again, Mrs. Tremond, right? Yeah, she Laura? gave it. And yeah, Mrs. Tremont gave it to Laura. But when Mr. That's S- a lovely painting. That's a lovely gift. <laughs> <laughs> Housewarming gift. Like the, oh, yeah. Well, it very, well very well may have saved her life. We've, we've posited that it's possible that was the moment where there were two Lauras or Laura split. And the one that we saw for the remaining of Firewalk with me was, you know, I'm not saying it was Laura's doppelganger, but there was another Laura that was in that painting and went, you know, beyond to wherever. And uh, so that, I mean, that opens, I don't want to get too much into that, but I think that painting is, has got some serious significance, but when Cooper and Mr. C is being led up the stairs, did you notice that there was a little, uh, like static and they, they started to disappear, like fade in and fade out. Did you see their images when they're ascending the stairs? That for me, that is the dream, like this place. And we live inside a dream. That's, it's not a a real place. It is a real place, but it, it, the the events that we're seeing unfold is happening within this dream construct. So when he's walking up the stairs and he goes into the room, I think it also cut away to the trees. And I think it did that one it more did. time. That's right. So that really was, that was the process he did. I mean, the convenience store looked like it really was there, but he had to walk up those stairs. And those were essentially like the ritual of like the curtains, like going up those stairs. Then it turned into the trees and became a different place. Right. That's a very interesting thing. Cause I always thought, you know, if you're walking up the stairs of the convenience store, <laughs> if things were going to disappear, uh, it would be all of them. It would be the convenience store, the stairs, and Mr. C and the woodsman, not just the two of those dudes. Right. It, it, and the wallpaper, the pattern, is it floral? Are they are they flowers oh, or yeah, roses? roses? Right. They're, are they blue roses? <laughs> no, I think they're all different colors. And, and they look yeah. more, uh, more colorful than Laura's painting. It looks like they've... they've uh, been uh, colorized or they're more pronounced. Also, just briefly, in Nadine's scene, her sweater, she had flowers on her sweater, roses. And we've noticed, I've noticed that in with many other characters wearing, you know, outfits that have these. Yeah, Becky, Lucy. Lucy, Yeah, a lot of characters. But so Mr. C goes into that room and he sees another woodsman. And this woodsman is sitting down. That's original city number one. Is it him? Yeah, it's Stuart Strauss, I think is his name. He's okay. original city number one who was in the jail cell next to Bill Hastings. Right, okay. One. Well, he's sitting down, and it looks like there's an old like CRT, cathode ray tube television, the back of it, and it's open. And that composition, the way that Woodsman number one, the city number one, and with that same television, I think it's a television, it might be an old radio, that is an exact... I say replica, but it really is an exact setup of Firewalk with Me, where Jurgen Prochnow, the woodsman in Firewalk with Me, was sitting down next to a very similar-looking 
you know, TV or radio and he, he, he did something, he pulled a switch or a lever, then it, the, the electricity came to just like, uh, Jurgen Prochnow's woodsman did in fire walk with me. And that signified something because I think Mr. C said, I'm here to see Philip Jeffries. And then another woodsman showed up. But before this, right when that woodsman sooty pulled that switch, it cut to very briefly a shot of the jumping man who we saw in the same um, above the convenience store scene and fire walk with me. But there's something very curious. Did you notice on the jumping man's face, there was yes. another image? Yes, dude. It's fucking freakish. I, I slowed it down. Like it's like fucking Sarah Palmer, dude. Sarah. And it's not just like one image of Sarah Palmer. It's like merged in with the jumping man's face, dude. It is absolutely insane it's completely insane it is and it that opens up i don't know you know what the fuck only thing i can we all assumed at least i assumed that when she took off her face we were seeing her um like the parasite within her being the experiment mother but there was something other than that hand with the black ring finger there was some kind of pointy protrusion some kind of horn like stinger something that oh yeah that was Familiar or similar to that bug that uh, had a very similar pointed nose, as does the jumping man. So maybe that was the cue when she took off her face that she has somehow uh, been um, playing host to the jumping man. And the jumping man in Firewalk with Me, Lynch described it to uh, the actor, Carlton Lee Russell, I believe is his name, got direction from Lynch. And this uh, Carlton Lee Russell did an interview and he said that in an interview, Lynch's instructions to him or his direction was you are like a talisman so that's how i've always assumed the jumping man is like a talisman but he also is dressed just like the man from another place in that red suit so i thought maybe that could have been mike uh the spirit mike but you know we just referred to him as the jumping man but we did see that character finally we just got a glimpse of him and really he was overshadowed by the image of sarah palmer on his face yeah, I mean, I can't understand what that means other than the fact that if she is somehow the mother, then maybe she is the mother of all these creatures, that every one of these have a little bit of Sarah and a little bit of mother in her, you know? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that would make sense. Like, it was very disturbing, yeah. I don't know no, what the that, fuck that meant. That's a good point. You can't point. see that upon first view, but that was completely insane. Uh, and so then they that's right before they go. Is that before he goes into they go, they go down that long hallway? Or have we gotten to that point yet? Like, Yeah, no, that happens— yeah, that happens when he goes into that first room and then the second woodsman appears and he he produces some stick and he pounds it on the ground. And that's some kind of signal for the other woodsman to lead Mr. C down a long hallway, which I think leads to a door. And then when he opens the door, he is in another location. Now, this location, it will be very familiar to those who... Um, have seen Firewalk with Me many times. That is the Red Diamond City Motel location in Firewalk with Me, where Teresa Banks, Laura Palmer, and Ronette were going to have a threesome or a foursome, whatever, with Leland. And he chickened Holy out. Shit. That's the same location. Now, if that was, I don't know if that's what Lynch's intent was, but because this whole thing is like a dream within a dream, and that door could have led to anywhere, but it was instantly recognizable to me as the Red Diamond City Motel location. And I can't recall what room they were in 
during Firewalk with me during that scene, but I know that Mr. C was led to room number eight. That's where he. That's where Jeffries is. So I'm going to watch Firewalk with me again and see if they if there's any correlation or connection between the room that um, that Laura Renette and, and Teresa were in. And then we see that. Yeah, that go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, whatever Leland chickens out in Firewalk with me, and, and, and he runs off. Doesn't like the. The little kid jump out and start hopping around. The little Teresa uh, <laughs> Tremont's kid, like there's some there's some weirdness going on. He doesn't just leave the hotel, right? Yeah, there's some black dog runs at night shit going on there. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. And he was in that scene, and he was holding the same stick that the jumping man was wearing, and the masks were very similar as well. Now, yeah. Some people, yeah. some people posit that might be a representation of Leland. As a child, I've never really subscribed to that. He is the, the magician, son, grandson of, of Mrs. Tremont. But I love that when he went through that final door, that door and that location, I was, okay, another, I, I love all the callbacks to Firewalk With Me. I, I love Firewalk With Me a lot. And, and it, it's becoming more and more significant to this narrative. But one thing we forgot to mention before I think the hallway is that the woodsman leads him up that staircase. That staircase, big, right. And that's the zone staircase because that mushroom cloud is on the wall. That That is the same staircase. And that opens up – I mean, I don't know specifically why the zone, when Cole entered it, it looked it – was, it was that location. And if that was where Briggs was and where Hastings and Ruth went to meet Major Briggs, I don't think so because obviously it's a different location and that was like a, a portal. This I don't think is a portal. This has – a strong significance to the experiment and obviously to the woodsmen and obviously to Jeffries now. But um, that was a, a real, you know, curious um, uh, placement, like seeing that the stairs there and uh, the stair that he's walking upstairs to get to the place and he walks up more stairs. So it was like this labyrinthian maze to get to Jeffries. And when he almost, when he gets to a door, it's locked. And then who does he see? He sees a strange woman. Right? Yeah, and who is that strange woman? <laughs> I don't know. Who is the strange woman? Do you know that woman? First time I saw her, she was walking. She was, you know, she came to come uh, came towards the camera. She was seen at first in the distance, and as she got closer, I thought it was the actress, who, uh, the Renette Pulaski, Phoebe Augustine. And then as, it, as as the actress got closer, or the character got closer, I realized that it wasn't, and then. The, the character said, and she's listed in the cred, credits as bosom, bosomy woman, I believe. And she goes, I, I know that's, that's how she's listed in the credits. Seriously. Yeah. And she goes, you know, and she speaks backwards. Like we're not in the lodge, but she's speaking backwards. And then again, they, lock the door for you. And it's not like scary, really. She's scary. Obviously she's terrifying looking, <laughs> but uh, she says it kind of in a matter of fact way, kind of like Carl Rod under unlocking a door for one of his trailer park people. It's not particularly <laughs> terrifying, but uh, it's very fucking weird. Like keep going, dude. Uh, but wait, wait, who was the woman then? Uh, where's the punchline? Who is it's that? A it's a man, baby. It's played by a man. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was about to say. Cause I was looking, uh, I didn't want to be on PC or anything, but I was just watching it again in the nighttime. I have it, have it going on as well. I was like, it looks kind of like a man. Um, so it is a man. It's not a woman. It's a man. And when the final shot of that character after unlocking the door and turning to the camera, I, I said the same thing. I go, that looks just like a man. So then when the episode ended and I put together that the bosomy woman was that character. It was the only person it could be. Then I did a little additional research and found out that, yeah, it was played by a man, which is 
For Who's me, the actor that plays Busby Woman? I think his name is like Malachi or something. I don't know. The, the, it might, it's in I the might, credits? Yeah, it's in the credits. Yeah. But the fact that that character is listed as Busby Woman and it's played yeah, by... Yeah, that's kind of weird. Anybody named Busby Woman played by Malachi, that'll catch your eye. <laughs> but it also like, makes... Me, the corn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I always think of when I hear Malachi. But it makes me think of Mulholland Drive, where the, the bum, the homeless creature that uh, appeared a couple of times, the very scary bum creature was yeah, played by a woman. And, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, it's, it's apparent seeing the, the, the film, but if you do a little research, I think Bonnie Aarons is her name. So Lynch is playing with, you know, gender here. But uh, so the door is unlocked and he goes into the room. And the first thing I noticed was the window in the background and the little drapes. And it reminded me of the window in Lost Highway that the mystery man at the very end peeks out when Madison, Fred Madison leaves. It looks almost exactly the same. And then the overhead fluorescent light, which keeps on flickering throughout the scene, which for me was very similar to the pilot where Cooper and Truman are in the morgue with Laura's body and the bad transformer. So, And then the radiator as well. The radiator, radiator in the room, as we know from Eraserhead... The, All the Lynch tropes, visual tropes, yeah. Yeah, the lady in the radiator. There's another place within the radiator. And basically the room, like it, it unveils. And beyond the radiator is where Jeffrey's, that's where his lair is. That's where Jeffrey's um, is. And it's not a physical being. He is, uh, what would you say, like a teapot? Well, some people are calling him a tea kettle because uh, he kind of had that little spewing steam coming out. And he had like a little, like uh, it kind of resembled that, but it also resembled the giant's alarm that we've seen in episode eight. Uh, yeah. So it was very interesting. But it, yeah, it kind of created this little circle orb. I was like, oh, another orb here. And also, it kind of reminded me of the white smoke that we saw in the White Lodge last episode. But it was this smoke uh, emanating out of this. Uh, you know, giant alarm clock, which is now looks resembles some sort of tea kettle. And I suppose that's where Philip Jeffries is allowed to communicate. I don't think he is that. I think he is somehow his spirit is allowed to communicate with, I suppose, human beings or whoever's in the lodge. I don't know what the fuck, but he is that now. And it was, uh, <laughs> what was the first thing he said? He, he was pretty funny, actually, <laughs> Philip Jeffries. <laughs> I think he said like, oh, it's you. I think that was in his Southern accent. Like, <laughs> oh. like, my yeah. God, like you look like shit, essentially. Like he said, my God, or oh my God, like when he saw him. I presume that maybe because he was shocked to see Cooper and wasn't sure how he looked. What do you think that? His, well, yeah, he says, I think he says, oh, it's you to Mr. C. And Mr. C says, Jeffries. And that's when Jeffries goes, my God. And he's doing it in the <laughs> David Bowie faux Southern accent. And uh, it sounded like... In the last episode, you could tell though. I could, t- I could totally tell that it wasn't him this time. Yes, for sure, for sure. But they have this dialogue, and uh, uh, basically, Mister C wants to know if, or not if, but why Jeffries, you know, hired Ray to kill him, and Jeffries just questions that. I think he goes, "What?" and uh, admits that he called Ray, and Mister C. Think, I think says, well, then you sent you sent him to me. But because that, I don't have your number. <laughs> you call me? He goes, I don't have your number. <laughs> right, right. So uh, the, the basic like crux of the scene uh, is the finally, finally we get Judy. And Cooper, or Mr. C, excuse me, wants to know from Jeffries why in 1989 he mentioned... Judy, and that becomes really the the big mystery of 
the scene. And uh, we get a flashback, another flashback, back-to-back episodes of that scene where Jeffries came to the Philadelphia offices and pointed at Cooper and said, who do you think this is there? And we got the, you know, the, the, the scene as it unfolded saying, well, we're not going to talk about Judy. So Cooper, Mr. C, wants to know who Judy is and if she has something from him, uh, for him. But what, what is most interesting in that scene was that Jeffries says to Mr. C, oh, it is you. Like, like it's, you are Cooper. And then the camera gets really close on Mr. C. So did you think, since they're showing this flashback to Firewalk With Me, that who we saw in that scene was not Agent Cooper, but Mr. C? Yeah, so that kind of the implications there is that he was already inhabited by uh, a doppelganger before he even showed up in Twin Peaks? Well, I mean... (sighs) I, you know, the whole thing, is it future, is it past, right? I always thought that Jeffries, like Briggs, was going backwards and forwards in time and could foresee Cooper's fate and was basically— Well, couldn't Cooper—like, okay, here's one thing. They're like, okay, so the doppel came out of the lodge, right? He had to have downloaded, like, the memories of Cooper. He has to know—like, you know what I'm saying? It's not like he—just he, because he knows all about that, Mr. C, doesn't necessarily mean that he's Cooper— it's, or that he was there as Mr. C, uh, it's that he still has these latent memories of the original Cooper and that he's using that to manipulate still, you know, pretend because he was able to give Diane or give uh, Colt, Gordon Cole the thumbs up. You know what I mean? Like he knows, like I was, you know, he, he knows stuff about Cooper uh, just by being a doppel, I think. And so he would know about that conversation. Well, he is Cooper in a sense. He's Cooper's shadow self. So he has the memories. He even says, you know, 1989 and... That was the year that Laura died. That that whole scene actually took place um, February 16th at 10, 10 a.m. I believe it was one week, seven days before Laura Palmer was murdered. So, yeah, he, he obviously has all the memories of, of Cooper because he is, in essence, Cooper, a part of him, just his shadow self. So, but there's one other thing with um, that, uh, that scene is that Mr. C asks Jeffries... Did you call me five days ago? Now, is that in reference to the phone call that Mr. C made after he killed Daria in part two? Or is it an unknown phone call? It has to be that. It's that. Because everybody doesn't know, is this Philip Jeffries? Like, it has to be that. But five Although days? I was like, oh, that's interesting. That, yeah, five days. I was like, well, that's interesting. Has it been five days? <laughs> I, ha- I obviously don't have the timeline because everything's going all over the place. But I was wondering that too. Well, it was 12 episodes again, and I know not, uh, you know, each episode is not necessarily one day, but here we are again with a kind of a, a little bit of a sketchy timeline here. I mean, he was in prison for at least, I mean, come on, at least two days, right? You would think? Two days, I would think? <laughs> or maybe three? You think longer than that, actually. I thought he was in there for a couple days. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, two or three I days. Know, yeah, week. I don't know. But... <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> We'll just say fuck it. Yeah, okay. So that was weird though. Yeah, so keep going. So basically the big thing is, so you are Cooper and then having that close up of Mr. C and then wanting to know from Philip, you know, what Judy wants and who Judy is. And if she, you know, needs to, has something for Mr. C and he seems, Mr. C seems uh, so, it's the first time I've really seen him vulnerable 
Obviously, he's yeah. been shot by, by by Ray before, but he was, you know, like Jeffries is you know, kind of like omniscient. I mean, he's he's this. What I mean, we don't know what he represents, but Mister C really is vulnerable at that first at that point and is almost desperate to find out who Judy is. Now, at this point in the story, I think that Judy can only be two people. I think it, you know, is either um, Laura Palmer or Naido. Um, I think maybe some people... I don't think so, no. I think just because in Firewalk With Me and the Missing Pieces, when Jeffries went to Buenos Aires, the the hotel, the the, the clerk at the front desk said, we have, the, the, you have a, late, a message from the young lady, Miss Judy. So the, you know, the presumption is that she was very young at that point. Here we are. We only have three hours left. Judy obviously is going to play a significant role. It's got to be... I mean, I think I just think it has to be Laura because there's one thing here. This is this is why I think Laura Palmer because when when Mr. C is so desperate and Jeffries is silent, or basically he says, well, "Why don't you call her?" and these numbers start appearing, and Mr. C has like, what does he have? He's got like a notepad and pen. Still a notepad. He's still the Boy Scout. He's still got the Cooper in him. Uh, so he busts out the old notepad and pen like the intrepid reporter that he isn't. But uh, the FBI guy uh, had some notes and he took it down. Yeah. So did you write down the numbers? Uh, I that? did. The first four numbers were 480, and I thought maybe it was a phone number. So I looked it up, and it's an area code in Phoenix. And I don't know if that's significant or not, but it didn't seem like there were seven numbers, and you thought you saw maybe some other symbols involved. So yeah, I thought I saw some periods and longitude circles and weird shit, but I only I didn't uh, scrutinize it. So I need to go back and look, but that was very curious. Yeah, what Jeffrey says, well, why don't you call her? And then the phone in the room starts ringing and it's this antiquated phone. And it looks like something, you know, for maybe the 30s or 40s. But if you notice um, next to the phone, it looks like, now I could be just going off on a wild, you know, uh, a wild tangent here. It it looks like a little small notebook. It looks like the cover looks like Laura Palmer's secret diary. The cover, the color. I, it's just you know maybe maybe I'm making things up here. That's the first thing that came. You mean like my- the same kind of red marbling? Yes, kind of that red like that. Okay. Yeah, watch it again. And the, it could. I think be- I may have seen that out of the corner of my eye. Actually, that kind of sounds familiar to me. So that's interesting. I'll go back and look at that. Yeah, that would be weird if Laura's diary is in the fucking lodge <laughs> or in the woodsman convenience store. Well, no, I'm not saying. I, I, Wouldn't it be cool if you stay in the convenience store, like at the hotel up there? Uh, every instead of having Bibles in every room, you have Laura's diary. And <laughs> Well, maybe cool. that is like a Bible. Would it be, except for, you know, unfortunately, it wouldn't be the snakeskin Bible that you uh, you would hope for. That you, you could have that too. Yeah, snakeskin Bibles. You could have Lord's Diary. I hope some like uh, Twin Peaks hipsters eventually start like some woodsman uh, motel sixes at some point, like uh, based on the Black Lodge experience of this episode. I'd go. Would you? I would go too, my friend. Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Here's a question. Okay, here's the thing. It looked like, like you're saying, it looks like fucking Mr. C for the first time seemed like desperate, like, you know, really yelling about Judy and wanting to find out. It made me think like, does he, because if he really wanted to know, wouldn't he have flashed a little Bob, you know, a little Bob power if he's got Bob still in him? That's to, true. To like intimidate Jeffrey? Like why, why, where, it made me feel maybe he does not have Bob in him still. It made me think that he's, he's, he doesn't seem like he's he's strong. It seemed like if he was going to talk to Philip Jeffries, you know, I mean, he'd, he'd flash a little Bob. I, I agree with you. It did seem like it for him being seemingly being a little vulnerable 
that is not a that, that is not a Bob trait. So it is the first time that I I've questioned whether or not Bob is in Mr. C after the shooting in part eight, but I still think that he is. But one other, there was so much detail in this scene. It's really hard to um to just, you know, reconcile it to really just kind of like, you know, come up with some concrete opinions on things. But one other final clue Jeffries gives to Mr. C is, well, you've met Judy before. I don't think he gives a pronoun like a he or a she. Um, but he says you've met Judy before. That's another indication that it could be Laura Palmer because he, you know, Cooper met Laura in his dream um, in obviously the first season. And the only other person it could be, and this would be a wild fucking curveball, is if Judy is actually Major Briggs. Uh, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because Why of, not? Garland Briggs, Judy Garland, Liz uh, Lynch is a huge Wizard of Oz fan. We know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I can see it. <laughs> we know that Briggs is playing some integral role in this narrative, and I thought maybe with Philip Jeffries somehow that would be a curveball. I don't think it's true, but you know the fact that Mister C. Uh, when he was talking to, who he thought was Jeffries in part two, said, you met with Major Garland Briggs, said met. And here Jeffries says, well, you've already met Judy before and didn't say she. So that would be the only thing um, that would make me think that it, it might not be Laura or Naido and it could be Major Briggs because I would think that Mr. C would want to know about Briggs from Jeffries and it, there was no mention of Briggs at all. So maybe, you know, there's some, you know, mystery going on there. Well, it seems weird. He's been wanting to know about like Philip Jeffries and about Briggs, uh, you know, and about coordinates. And now he's like all of a sudden wanting to know about Judy. Has he been wanting to know about Judy at all? Has Judy been mentioned yet until this episode? No, this is it. We have not had any mention of Judy in the entire series. And the only time we've had Judy mentioned was in Firewalk with me and in two scenes, the the Bowie scene and, and the monkey. So that, that's been it. But here it is now. It, that's why I think it's Laura, because we're so close to the end. We still haven't seen Laura. We all suspect that we're going to see her. So for me, it makes sense that she is going to be Laura somehow. And if she was pulled out of the lodge and into a life... And like Cooper in Dougie Land, that she is maybe li- maybe she doesn't even know that she's Judy. But uh, I'm just so happy that we have the Judy reference, and it wasn't just some throwaway line. That it is it is of deep deep significance. Well, and the terrifying takeaway is slowing down the jumping man and seeing Sarah Palmer's face in there oh, and yeah. making you go, what the fuck oh, is that? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's completely fucked up. Well, we should probably move on to the next scene. Uh, what's the next one oh. for time purposes? Oh. I mean, we could spend an entire hour doing this. but uh, Well, we might have to run a little bit longer than our normal hour tonight, maybe like five or ten minutes, just because we're not quite done with this scene. So Mr. C picks up the phone, and as soon as he does, he's transported outside the exterior of the convenience store where there is a phone booth and he has the phone up to his ear. Like he is talking to whoever called him, but then, then almost in the same instant, the receiver is far away. Like he's holding it. Like, you know, he's either just, you know, picking it up or about to put it to his ear. And then the line goes dead and he puts it on the uh, hook again. And either he got a message or he didn't, we don't know. But when he's walking back to his car, 
he's there's someone pointing a gun at him and who is pointing <laughs> a gun at him little dicky horn buddy he's there he's not going away i thought maybe he was going to be gone for somehow but there's little dicky horn he's been uh he was so compelled by seeing him uh, uh back in uh, montana that he followed him this entire time and his in his busted up saturn uh, car and he's got a gun to his head and uh dude the big reveal he you know at, he, he says i know you you're an fbi agent um, I've seen the picture of you in your fancy FBI uniform. And he's like, where'd you see the picture? He's like, my mom. <laughs> Who's your mom? <laughs> Audrey Horn. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and kind of gave him a little look, like, hmm, kind of checking him out. And then he gave the old the old fake spit to the ground trick, which of course <laughs> makes Dickie Horn <laughs> look immediately and then just punch him right in the face and jack him, steal his gun, and uh, say, hey, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story or get in the car. I'll tell you the story or whatever. Like, so they're like buddies, man. <laughs> like it does feel like for certain now that he is his son. And now it's going to be a father son ruling the galaxy together and try to take over the world with evil. No. <laughs> oh, Mr. C also found a second or two to send a text. Did you catch that? Oh, that's right. Las Vegas again. Can he say hello? Can he send a, put an emoji? <laughs> There's all kinds of emojis that represent like a Garmin Bazia corn and fire and all kinds of stuff. I want a Bob emoji. Is there a Bob emoji? Yeah, I wish there was a Bob emoji actually, or a woodsman emoji. But anyway, so he sends the Las Vegas, the Las Vegas question mark, and we presume that is to once again Diane, but yeah. of course we're not sure. Right. Uh, but then yeah, then he then they hop in the car and off they go, man. Are they going? I guess they're going to Vegas. Well, I don't know. I uh, I suspect that they may be going to Twin Peaks. I think the Vegas was a reference to or a, uh, a text to maybe Diane, and or you know, okay, here's something interesting. This just came to me is that with Mister C saying five days ago, and it seemingly being at least like ten days, twelve days, maybe even two weeks. Remember, Diane got that text in like part. Jesus, I don't know, part, you know, nine or part seven. I don't know. I can't remember what part it was, but in Buckhorn, where it says, yeah, where it says Las Vegas. What was that? She got a text that said Las Vegas, or maybe it was later. Maybe it was like uh, part, part 11 or 12. 11 or 12. Yeah. 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 But maybe that was that timeline. Maybe that was the text. Maybe that was the only Las Vegas text that he sent. Because have we seen Mr. C send a text saying Las Vegas? No, so that's probably you're probably right. That or I mean, here he's sending it again. You know, trying right, to, that's to figure true. that out. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's probably true, and it makes it makes me think they're going to go to Vegas next. Um, yeah, I think they're going to Twin Peaks. I think that it's you know he knows Hutch and Chantal, which we'll talk about here in a second, are going to Vegas. But but the convenience store after father and son, you know, take off to rule the galaxy together. Um, disappears after some Lynch artistic flourishes with uh, smoke and electricity. I think inside the convenience store we see um, the the potent white, you know, electrical light and the smoke, and then the fluttering, and then slowly but surely it disappears, like it never was there. And for me, it, it just feeds into the whole dream living inside a dream, the ancient phrase, as uh, Cole said in the previous episode. And then we're off. I think uh, we fade out yet again. I think that's the third fade out here in the first like fifteen or twenty minutes, and we go, I believe, directly to the trees. Like these these transition shots of tree, beautiful transition shots, and we come upon two lovers in the woods, completely sparkled out. Yeah, well, Stephen again and uh, Gersten Haywood, uh, they're in the woods. I thought it was going to be near. I thought you know what I thought. I thought we were going to go back to the Jackrabbit's Palace and maybe see some action going on the next day or something because yeah. there's four 
253s, 10-1 and T-10-2. We only went out for one of them. So I thought we were going to get that, but we didn't. I think we're following a, don't worry, following a hiker <laughs> or a guy walking his dog, which turns out to be Mark Frost. <laughs> is that Mark Frost's real dog? Yeah. I don't know if it's his real dog, but that is Mark Frost. And he is playing or he's listed in the credits as Cyril, Cyril Pons. And if you recall in the original series, I believe it was the pilot. And yeah. there was a cutaway when Shelley was watching the news. He played a reporter on the scene at the, well, I think it, maybe it was the second season premiere because the mill had just burned down, and he was listed as Cyril Pons, I think with a D actually. So he's playing. I don't know if it's the same character or just you know just uh, them goofing around, but yeah, Mark Frost is in the woods as Cyril Pons walking his dog. And did you have a hard time understanding the dialogue between Stephen and Gersten? Of course, I always I can't understand what the fuck he's saying half the time. Caleb Landry Jones is just marble mouth. <laughs> I couldn't understand half of what he was saying, but I thought that he was still broke. They were obviously sparkled out, and he seemed to be still broken up about being busted by Becky. But, you know, they seemed to be extremely in extreme distress, and you had another theory about that. Well, I think so, yeah, because the the few pieces of dialogue I could hear was that um, Stephen was saying that, I, I, you know, I did it. I did do it. And Gersten was saying, she did it. She did it to herself, and and Stephen was like, no, no, I did it. And for me, the connection or insinuation is that maybe something bad happened to Becky, and Stephen is responsible, whether it's a drug overdose or, you know, maybe he killed her. Because he obviously is, you know, on the edge, and at the end of the scene, we hear a gunshot, and presumably he killed himself. So it was, I mean, we don't know because here they are both completely sparkled out and they're both kind of looking up at the ominous trees and it's almost like the trees are emitting some kind of, you know, like hum or some kind, and I'm not saying the great Northern hum, but like talking to them in, in a dark fashion or they're at least receptors to the evil that is in the woods that Harry mentioned in the first season when uh, he was telling Cooper about the uh, the bookhouse boys. There's, there's always been something, you know, dark and mysterious in the woods and it's been there as long as anyone can remember. So that's what I was thinking and that, that the woods itself and, and Jerry being in the woods, the people who are in the woods, at least in this series and, and lost in the woods, uh, they're being, in, I'm not saying they're being influenced, but maybe the the influence of the woods on these particular characters are, are driving them to do things that they they normally wouldn't do and uh and Gersten takes up they, they were they were propped they were both sitting down and it was this huge tree and this mossy green around him it looked beautiful but um i i still don't understand everything that they were saying i think someone mentioned a rhinoceros I mean, that could just be crazy sparkle talk, but uh, <laughs> but we've had giraffes and zebras, I think, or talk, the sparkle queens and uh, Sky Ferreira, I think they were talking about a, a, a zebra or what something. I, what I felt curious was that he seemed to be like reloading this gun, uh, putting the final bullet in it like he was going to kill himself, but the whole – the the, the uh, the round, he's already got 15 other bullets in there. You know, oh, yeah, so I think he was right. just loading them all one by one and going like, no, 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 don't put that last one in. Don't put the last one in. Maybe that was it. But I was like, well, he's already got plenty of bullets to kill himself. <laughs> he doesn't have to, you know, they're arguing over the last bullet. Um, and so it, it did seem like something horrible had happened. Uh, maybe it was like the fact that they're tweaked out on Sparkle that they, um, you know, maybe the woods freaks them out more or maybe the ghosts and the spirits in the woods 
are more visible to people that are tripping out in Sparkle or, you know, they, maybe they think that they're out there. I don't know, but it was a very, it was a wrenching scene. It was painful to watch for me and very well acted. And when Mark Frost comes around and, and discovers them and they freak out and Gerson runs around to the corner of the tree and just sits there and tearing her hair out as he shoots, the bullet goes off, the fire's off in the, and presumably that Steven has kill, just killed himself and she is just freaking out. Oh my God, it was horrible. It, and then she's just staring up at the, she kind of loses herself by staring up into the, the, the trees. Um, but man, what a scene, a very painful scene, but a very horrible scene. And I wonder, I wonder if that means Becky's fucked up or maybe that could even be the end of their storyline in some ways. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't have a lot of time. I agree. I just, I, it would be shocking to me if, if, Becky is is dead that it would happen off screen. I mean, just not because well, yeah, of- think about this also. Like they keep saying that they keep going back to that number six electrical pole, right? And that thing was in Firewalk with me, uh, presumably at the old fat trout, right? Not at the new fat trout. It didn't exist at that time, correct? Correct. So are they re- retconning and making that number six suddenly here at the new fat trout? Uh, and so if, is that what they're presumably, I mean, presumably that's what they're doing, right? They've retconned it so that now the number six is in Twin Peaks and not in Deer Meadow. Well, it was in Deer Meadow, obviously, Deer, uh, cause the fat trout was in Deer Meadow. Now the new fat trout is in Twin Peaks and same, like you said, the electrical pole is, but the electrical pole isn't at the fat trout. It's near, I, well, I think it's near the, um, uh, the accident scene where little Dickie Horn ran over that that kid because doesn't Carl just look to it or it could just be him well, see, remembering I thought it. That, I thought he was remembering that. I've well, seen people on Twitter right. talk about that as well, say, oh, no, it was right there. But I thought he was remembering that. And so then it made me think they retconned it back to the new Fat Trout, which made me go, okay, maybe uh, Stephen and Becky are sitting in the old number six station where the Tremonts were sitting and that that's why the evil went, that Becky would have been killed in their trailer uh, in the you know no that's the evil good. trailer by the number six electrical pole no that's good I, I like your theory better because um it, and I the retcon I'm okay with the retconning I mean it's mysterious anyways the whole idea what is what is that electrical pole number six the significance of it we know it it's going to have some great weight here just because of the clues that the fireman gave gave Andy but I, I agree with you I think there might be um it might be at that fat trout like and and it, and Carl Rod is having a callback to it. And maybe there's a very, you know, there's a, another reason why Carl moved the fat trout to Twin Peaks. We know in the secret history of Twin Peaks that Carl Rod is from the Twin Peaks area. So maybe like during his like, you know, his, his December days, he decided to come back home. But I'm going to think about that. That's a really good uh, uh, theory. I like that a lot. Well, yeah, so that was a great scene and very uh, disturbing. And we don't know how much time we have left for that storyline, but it was wow. Um, so what was the next scene, dude? We well, there was the brief scene of of Carl when Cyril Pons, Mark Frost, tells Carl about what he saw in the woods, and Carl, you know, and then they they cut to the, their trailer, and you see the the broken glass where the coffee cup was thrown through. But Carl has a shovel; it's not a gold shovel, but he has a shovel. Um, yeah, two shovels now. But that also, for me, I don't think he is involved in that plot at all with Becky and Stephen. But if something did happen to Becky, and Here's a visual, you know, cue that Carl has got a a shovel, like just signifying, like you know, digging a grave. I mean, shovel doesn't really signify digging a grave, digging. But for me, that could be just some kind of visual, you know, metaphor. But it's a real brief scene. We got Carl. I don't even think said anything. Here he didn't, didn't say anything. And then we go directly to, ladies and gentlemen, the Roadhouse proudly presents 
ZZ Top. <laughs> Dude, I had, did you think for a second the woodsmen were going to roll out with the big beers and start rocking out singing? <laughs> <"Hey, laughs> man, if you guys don't know ZZ Top, if you're too young for ZZ Top, is a bearded woodsman like band. Uh, but they were just playing a record. They weren't, there's no ZZ Top, man. No Woodsman either. <laughs> no, but James and uh, Freddie are at the Roadhouse, and uh, he something something's off about James. And, and we did get that line in part two from Shelley saying that he was in a motorcycle accident because he goes up to that booth where she is with her husband and another couple. And apparently, you know, the husband knows that James has feelings for his wife or there's some there's some backstory there because he admit when he sees james he, maybe he was maybe he walked in while he was singing that love song to her on stage last week <laughs> <two weeks ago. laughs> he was weeping <laughs> i wonder if james uh told renee at some point you know i wrote that just for you and no no uh, just for you and yeah, the other dead you. girls <laughs> well she wouldn't know the two other dead girls <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um, dude yeah, so you know he does, and I was going, James, no, have a little, little tact here. This is the yeah, wrong that was move. Terrible. It didn't feel like he he had like maybe some social like mental like he was just, he was kind of like going like just wanted to say hi like hello like he didn't <laughs> know how to be like you know, normal. And I think like something happened to him. He seems comfortable with Freddie, but maybe he's got some social anxiety and some head trauma from an accident, perhaps. But uh, yeah, he caused a real stir. And of course, he just got punched right in the face. <laughs> but luckily, he had a sidekick, a superhero sidekick next to him, Freddie uh, Sykes, and who was very calm, who just kind of watched his buddy get his ass kicked for a few seconds. But then he had to step in and uh, delivered uh, two colossal punches, which were, didn't look too hard. I wonder what would happen if he actually wound up and jacked someone with that hand. But I loved how when he punched the two guys out, it like skipped the record <laughs> for a second. It was so large or such a big punch. Um, and then they started foaming at the mouth. And uh, James got the blame for it. It didn't help him get the girl at all. But then they get thrown in jail. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about that scene, dude? Well, yeah. Right, the first time we get to see Freddie in action, man. I liked it. Yeah, they get thrown into the pokey. And uh, who is the arresting officer? Oh. <laughs> Finally, the tables are turned. Bobby <laughs> Briggs locks up. I thought I wanted everybody just to gently close the door of the jail cell and go like, take that, Mr. Monkey <laughs> Or just go like, yeah, anyway, but he was very professional, of course. Bobby's a change man. He wouldn't do that. So he closed the door. Uh, him and Hawk locked him up in jail with our, our three friends. It was Three's <laughs> Company, and now Five is definitely a crowd. It's turning into an insane asylum in the Twin Peaks jail cell. We got Nido. We got Chad. We got Drooling Billy, like a monkey, crazy zombie boy. And now we got our two heroes. And the, they were immediately taken by Nido, who apparently was like doing some sort of like she either had, had known that felt their presence maybe, and that maybe that they were familiars and positive. I don't know. He, they were, they weren't evil like the other two guys in the cell, but she was doing some sort of kind of a one arm man Tai Chi that we saw in like episode six, a little, some kind of movement towards them, which I think we're going to go back and see more of next episode. Yeah, no, I think that Freddie's destiny wasn't to help James at the roadhouse. I think his destiny might be here in the twin peaks jail cell because i i still believe that someone or something's going to come for naido and uh and if if freddie is there with his magical pile driver green glove might have you know something to say about that perhaps so i think so so it was like a test run we get to see the yeah. test run of the glove um but there they are and also we didn't get to find out what's in the hum they left that out i guess james was too chicken to open the door what do you think 
Do you think you opened the door to find out or not? I don't think we'll ever find out because it's now like, remember. <laughs> well, I'm just gambling. What do you, as, as a character, what, what do you think James did? Do you think he opened the door or do you think he let it go? No, I think he, knowing James now in this scene, I don't think James opened the door. I think that he turned away. I think he got his guitar and headed to the roadhouse and uh, looked for Renee. That's what I think. That might have been his hero's journey test, like Cooper, when he should have jumped off after Nido in episode right. three. Maybe he failed. But uh, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I kind of think that he might have had a, a changed life. He might have been changed man if he had opened that door. Yeah, I agree. He didn't. So. I agree. Anyway, what happened after that? Well, we have a very brief scene back at the uh, Las Vegas FBI department where uh, I think it's Wilson and... <laughs> I don't know the Stan character from Mad Men. I can't remember his name in the series, but it's just little like one minute scene and it's the wrong Jones family. And there's these screaming kids and, uh, and uh, Wilson and then end scene. It was a, a really brief, one of these non sequitur scenes. Uh, it could easily have been cut out. Um, I, find, I loved it. Oh, well, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had no problem with it. I mean, the, the running time of this episode was only 55 minutes. So, um, they could have had, you know, added another couple of scenes. I would have been fine with it. But yeah, it was a fine scene, but it was very brief. And we go directly to, we stay in Las Vegas and uh, we go to the uh, Duncan Todd's office who's still sitting behind his desk. I don't think he has ever once gotten up behind that desk. Has he? He's always dude, been. Tom, I actually, dude, seriously, I actually looked. I was like, does he even have legs? Like, look under his desk. It's like a mirror. Like, he's, you don't see his feet. <laughs> and I was like, what in the fuck is going on? I think there's like a mirror or something like underneath his desk that reflects the chairs in front of the desk. <laughs> but I definitely was like, you're right. He hasn't left the chair. I wonder if he was like stuck like, uh, you know, in the tea kettle like uh, Philip Jeffries, like he was some sort of, you know, trapped to the chair. But he's not. Uh, but dude, so who comes in and kills him? Well, Chantal comes in, but uh, and uh, she shoots him, and it has to be the worst CGI I have ever ever seen in any. The worst I had ever seen was in Escape from L.A., the sequel to Escape from New York. So, but that was in the early days of CGI. Here we are in 2017. It was horrible. Um, but in a, in a Lynchian horrible way. I mean, it's not. I thought it was awesome in a weird way. It was looked like almost like Mr. Bill from the 1970s. Those little sh- mini things they would have on Saturday Night Live, like a little Play-Doh version of him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he was almost like shot before he was shot. It was like just. It was so weird. <laughs> and even like his buddy Roger, when he gets shot, the way he collapses and dies is hilarious. I love his his death scene was awesome. Like I, I think he died fine, but they also did that same swizzles thing, that stylistic weird death deal when Phyllis uh, Hastings got shot. Um, They did the same thing with these two guys and it came out of Chantal. And so I guess that's not a Lodge thing. That's just like Lynch's. That's how people look when they get shot in Lynch world. Yeah. There's two things with uh, that scene when you were talking about Duncan Todd with, you know, the no legs and the mirror possibly. Um, I think of Mr. Roke in Mulholland Drive, you know, played by Michael J. Anderson, who was in that contraption whatever that seat and he was in a suit he's obviously a little little person but he was in this uh like a, a regular sized suit and his features were distorted like almost the opposite of david byrne and stop making sense and then also mulholland drive where the hitman scene the inept hitman had to keep coming back and there was new victims and chantal when she shoots roger she hears him screaming like the hitman in mulholland drive heard that big fat lady uh, screaming in the other room and had to you know investigate and finish her off well she had to do the same thing to roger uh, and we didn't see those bullets. And then she basically calls Hutch or Hutch is on the phone and she's placing an, an order, presumably to Wendy's again and making sure you get some uh, some extra ketchup because that's what uh, Chantal likes. 
Yeah, and she was wearing apparently Louboutins, which are really expensive shoes, uh, which the same French woman was wearing Louboutins a couple episodes. So I wonder if she stole those off somebody she killed and tortured before. Maybe she tortured somebody just to get those Louboutins at one point. Possibly. But, uh, but that was a great scene. I thought that was kind of mysterious for a second. I didn't see her face. And I kind of liked that yeah. for a second. I was like, who is that? But then, of course, we I knew it was. But uh, yeah, a very interesting scene. It kind of wraps that part up, which is good, tidy. Well, not quite um, and, yet. Uh, no, it's the one. It's one of the double header. She even says that to Hutch. I think like one more to go. So it's got to be Cooper, right? I mean, that's the second hit, obviously. It's too late for that. It's too late. No, we're going to not get there. But there, there's that brief scene of them, you know, again in their car eating, and I think that we're getting these scenes because of star power. And I don't mind. I, I, I really do. I like. I think they're fabulous actors, and I love Tim Ross' accent and uh, yeah, just their good. interaction. I liked him both. Yeah. Yeah. And that he got her the dessert and, oh, I love you. And just their little, you know, and obviously, you know, Mr. C's been banging, you know, Chantal. Hutch knows about it. It's just this. And they were talking about the like, thou shall kill like our nation, this our Christian nation and how everything's like, you know, turned upside down and basically making a reference to like, you know, the Indians, how, you know, we basically stole you know, the Indians land and, you know, for, you know, hundreds of years ago and talking at least Mark Frost, right out of the Mark Frost, like political handbook 101. And uh, it's just interesting. It's kind of like, I, I, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan, but, you know, these, both these characters have been in Tarantino films and it seems like a Lynch version of a Tarantino scene, even though I don't think Lynch probably has probably seen, you know, many Tarantino's films, if any, because we know, I think Lynch likes just one movie and one movie only, and that's Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> which we got a reference to, which I loved. Uh, is that the scene we go to next? Yeah, I wanted and, uh, that was the that was the cue, my oh, friend, for you man. to go go for it. Well, yeah. that's a great scene. This is the big scene we've been waiting for, you guys. Like Ducky's having cake, and it is a great moment in the the, the Jones household. It looks like uh, looks like they just had sex or something. Because like she's completely blissed out and very happy, <laughs> giving a big delicious piece of cake reward for being a good boy, and he's sitting there eating his cake. And, uh, dude, as soon as I saw that remote control on the tele on the table, I was like, what is that about? Like, cause, uh, I, I saw another remote control. I think it was on Mike snakes. He had a remote control on his desk at the car dealership. And I think even like uh, Truman had maybe had one on his desk, but I was like, what is that all about? And so of course he starts fiddling with that thing and it pops on after the third try and sunset Boulevard directed by Billy Wilder is on. And I immediately knew what was going to happen then. Cause I've seen that movie 8 million times. And uh, they cut to the scene, which is with the namesake of Gordon Cole, uh, where he got this name from, and they go, get me Gordon Cole, and his eyes light up. And I think everybody cheered. I cheered. Did you cheer? I cheered. I cheered, yes. <laughs> I was like, yes! Because you could see he was great acting. He was like realizing everything. And then his eyes panned down to the electrical socket right next to, and I was like, oh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> and he jumps down, and I was like, I saw that fork in his, I was like, uh-oh. And I was like, don't do it, Dougie, don't! But then I was like, what the fuck am I talking about? Do it, do it! And so I think everybody was screaming and yelling, and uh, as he goes to the electrical socket and investigates it and sticks in one side, doesn't work. And uh, boom, sticks in the other side and shorts out the whole house. She screams, Janie. You hear the sunny Jim go, what happened? And you see him presumably die to the floor. Boom. Dougie is dead, everyone. And Cooper lives. Oh, my friend. Cooper lives. In a way, though, I was kind of like, I didn't want to see Dougie go in a way. So I was like, for a second, I was like, no, don't. But then I was like, what am I talking about? Do. But uh, yeah, dude, we finally saw it 15 episodes in. So that was, he, he appeared in three. <laughs> That's a lot of episodes. We've got 12 episodes of him. Is that right? So Valhalla, yeah, Dougie. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to see him again. You think we might see him in the hospital. I think maybe that's it, that, that, that he goes into the void and he's in the lodge or something and that we don't ever see uh, Janie E or Sonny Jim again. What do you think? 
Uh, oh, no, that we talked about that briefly. I, I don't know what to think. I do. The one thing I do really, really think is that it's not over that Janie E and Sonny Jim. I think that that she probably took him to the hospital because I noticed that when he put the fork in the socket that you saw him like just go limp, collapse to the floor. I'm assuming that she finds him, takes him to the hospital. Now, when he goes, when we go to the hospital, if that's what does uh, happen, I don't think the the Cooper as Dougie will exist. I think he'll be like maybe, you know, not the Cooper that we all know and love, but, you know, not the the, the Cooper Dougie that he is going. He's had a transition. And that was the key is, is the, the socket. That's how he came into this realm. And this is how he is going to snap out of it. But I think there's going to be more to it. So I don't think we're quite done because I do believe Chantal and Hutch, they're going to have some kind of, of confrontation. Um, with with Cooper and Janie E and or Sonny Jim might be a part of this. And and I think the, the Vegas team or the FBI team, which we haven't seen or we did not see in this episode, I think are converging and we'll get all of this answered in, in the next episode. But one real quick thing about the Sunset Boulevard, the Gloria Swanson character, the Norman Desmond, Right before uh, it's Cecil B. DeMille who's who's playing the he's playing himself, but uh, right before he gives mentions the Gordon Cole line is that Desmond or Norma Desmond. That's also where I'm assuming Lynch you took the Chet Desmond name from Firewalk with Me. Yeah, Desmond. the Chet Desmond. But she's she talks to DeMille. She tells him like the old team, the old team is going to get back together again. You know, she's making her big comeback, and that's also another you know little subtext there, like the old yeah. the, the team, the FBI team getting back together. Yeah, that's a great movie. It was such a great touch. And uh, knowing that Gordon, every, I've watched that. It's on Netflix, you guys. If you've never seen the movie before, it's one of the best movies of all time. So I saw some people on Twitter going like, wait a second, Gordon Cole is in another movie? What the fuck? You know, so maybe some people haven't seen it, but a great movie to check out. Um, and Dougie, I don't know, man. I think this is a great way for Lynch and Frost to say bye-bye to uh, Vegas forever and to basically – uh, you know, fuck all the plans of the FBI and Mr. C and Chantal ever because Buggy's gone or he's out. I'm out of here, buddy. He's in the lodge already. And then I was thinking for this when that happened, I was like, because the next scene we cut to Hawk, I was like, uh oh, is he coming through the sycamore trees from episode yeah, two next? I thought the same thing, but not. So that's the scene that we cut next. Yeah, we cut to that next is uh, is Hawk right talking to 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 Margaret, to, to the log lady, and it's her, it's her. It's her big death scene. She's dying. She tells him right off the bat, you know, I'm dying. And uh, she has some other, she, she's the one who utters the, uh, the, the phrase, the tide, there's uh, some fear in letting go. And I don't think she's just talking about herself. I think it, it also is related to, um, you know, some of our characters, namely, I think, Cooper and, and any number of characters possibly. And I think maybe for, it's, it's really just a, a sage you know, uh, some sage advice there because it's true. There is some fear in letting go for all of us, but it was really, I mean, sad, uh, for, to see the law. I mean, because this really was, I mean, a, a death scene. I mean, Lynch ends it with the shot of her cabin and the lights going out. It was just, yeah. did you think it was going to for a second going to disappear the entire cabin? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> I was but I was like um, waiting. I was like, hmm. Maybe? But the one yep. thing that she, but, one uh, real, I think she gives him one final clue because she tells him that remember what I told you, um, that she can't say any more anything more about it, but uh, that she's got to watch for the one. She goes watch for watch for I think watch for that one, and um, I think she says that uh, under the moon and on Blue Pine Mountain. 
So I think it might be a reference to either the symbol that that Hawk told Truman that you really, really don't know, uh, want to know about, or Mr. C, the one that she, you know, told him about. And then she says her log is turning to gold and she's dying, which was great and sad. Yes. Yeah. And then Hawk. Had- I was crying tears. It was a lot. It was very emotional. And I'm glad that they gave this moment to Margaret. Um, and they even dedicated the whole thing to Margaret, <laughs> not Catherine Coulson. Right. Because haven't they already dedica- dedicated an episode to sure. Catherine Coulson? Yeah. I think the first one was so dedicated to her. Margaret Lanterman. Yeah. So this was the soul of the series essentially going out. And uh, it was interesting to th- that she couldn't talk about anything over the phone, which made me think because the electrical wires, the phone wires are being ah. tapped by the woodsman in the lodge and she couldn't say, but that, that what they had spoken about in person, um, I felt it was about Cooper, you know, but they, but, they, but they spoke on the phone about Cooper, you know? So I was like, That's they're talking true. about referencing a conversation that we've never seen before. Um, so it is very interesting what the, who, the one they're talking about. It could be Mr. C, it could be Sarah be somebody else. No, you're right. It doesn't, yeah, it could be any one of these uh, characters that you mentioned. And then, um, and we're still not done because Hawk has uh, summoned Andy and Lucy and Bobby and and Truman. And Truman was on his laptop looking at some, uh, I don't know, fish. There, I fish. Like, it's it's fish. fish. Yeah, it's like fish porn. It's just pictures of fish. Yeah, just fish porn. Fish High porn. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he delivers the, the news, and uh, it's all very sad. I don't know why Bobby is there. Sad. But... I like how Truman is sad. I like that. Yeah, he takes off his hat. It's a nice touch. And uh, and, and the light you know, dims, and, and she's gone. And uh, it's it's all... Very sad. She delivers one final message, and uh, and uh, here we have Valhalla, uh, you know Margaret Lannerman, uh, the I- iconic log lady. So um, very poignant. Great, great, really a, a great scene and uh, a great send off for her. She was she was actually very sick, obviously uh, during production. But I mean, she I think she died like maybe a week or two into production. So either Lynch was able to um, shoot scenes with her. Uh, before she got too ill, or she was a trooper right to the end, and I don't think we ever, you know, will know, or there's really no need to know. But I'm just so glad that she was able to be a part of of this new series, and she's an old Lynch stalwart, and uh, they go way, way back, and you can tell he has a lot of love, um, not only for Catherine Coulson, but but for the character, the Log Lady. Yeah, she was great. And Valhalla Log Lady, um, I, I know her spirit will live on. And I wonder, you know, if she's going to be buried with a log. Because the log could maybe live on as the deputy uh, and maybe keep solving crimes. <laughs> you still want the log to be deputized, log. right? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think they should bring the log in. Um, but then again, how would you get to communicate? You'd have to find somebody to communicate with the log. So I don't know. But um, it was a sad scene. And it really uh, – what was that? What, what was the next scene? Did we go back to the roadhouse? What was the next Well, thing? no. We have another scene with Audrey and Charlie. Oh, God. They are stuck in the threshold. They're stuck in like a purgatory. And I think someone on like Twitter mentioned like uh, Sartre's like No Exit, which I saw. It's a play. And it's like, it reminds me of that, uh, that they're trapped in like this hell. Like they don't know they're there. They can't get out. Um, but boy, it was just more of the same. And uh, and then she attacked him at the end. <laughs> and I thought for a second when she attacked him that like suddenly like the, the, the mental institution guards are going to pull her off and we're going to realize... You know, we're in a mental institution or something. He's wearing a doctor's outfit or something, but it didn't happen. Yeah, the big, the the for me, the most significant line was when um, he he keeps telling her to put on her coat. He's got his coat on. He's already very sleepy. He's still very sleepy, and uh, maybe he's got some. <laughs> I love that. I love <laughs> that. that. Maybe funny. he's got some iron poor blood. Still so maybe sleepy. Yeah, I'm he's so anemic sleepy. or something. He's just I'm 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 sleepy, Audrey. But I'm here. I've got my coat. I'm ready to go. And she seems to be hesitant. 
um, to to leave. And this this is not happening in I think the real world. I don't think you know she's or this is some whether she's in a coma, um, it's a dream. Well, you just knew that there was no way they were leaving that house. No, they, of course you know, not. As the scene began, they aren't going anywhere. Yeah, so that's the thing. She's trapped somewhere. Well, yeah, but doesn't he say, like, you're, you're telling me um, to, you're giving me shit right when we're on the threshold or right when you're on the threshold? Yeah, like, that's the key. Like the dweller on the threshold. Yeah. yeah, I was like, ooh, what does that mean? Well, I think it's, what do you think? It's, what does that mean? It's like for her to actually, if she is in, like, you know, some bad state, um, and we don't know what it is. That she has to be the one to decide to like go through the door to like you know go go to the tunnel see the light, um, but instead she continually uh, attacks him first verbally and then physically she she physically assaults him and starts strangling him. So it could be like if he represents like I was trying to really read into it. I need to watch it like about you know eight or nine more times to maybe get like some kind of you know definite. <laughs> Like idea of maybe what's going on because I still think that all these characters and and he represent things to her who Audrey or, or characters in Audrey's life like you know her her father you know Cooper um, you know any number of Emery Battis you know from the first I'm kidding about that but you know all these different Blackie um, no all these characters and I think that's what it is and maybe even little Dicky Horn um, so but it's really hard to you know. We don't know. We just have this 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 uh, on the surface scene of these two characters, and it's obviously not uh, you know a, a, they're not married, they're not in love, and there's something really, really, really deeper. You know, there was already a reference to or several references to Dante and uh, his journey, and uh, you know we have the, uh, the. I'm not saying that she's the. Is it the Beatrice? Beatrice? Portinari, Porten, Beatrice Portinelli. Portinelli, yeah. I think she would. That Laura would represent her, um, and not the Audrey. But uh, still, the Wizard of Oz, another Wizard of Oz thing. We don't know, but uh, um, I we're not done with it. I still think there's going to be. We're close because I think Audrey is close to either waking up, snapping to. But it really is for me interesting the placement of all of her scenes. This is the third time we've been in that location. Uh, with Charlie, and it's always been right at the near end of of the episode, and it always, and I think this is the case. It always bleeds into a scene at the Roadhouse with two people talking. Now this time, it's just one uh, girl, a young a young girl sitting in a booth, presumably waiting for her friends, and these two bikers are just you know standing waiting for her to move, and she's saying that she's waiting for someone. Will they forcibly move her? And put her on the ground and then we have some like, you know, hipster band who I don't know who they are playing a song that I don't really care about and uh, would like to be. So it was a great, you didn't like that song. That's a very lynching. I thought that was like, that's one you'd probably like. No, 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 no I don't wow. like it at all, but it's, it, but I didn't like mute it or turn away because she was still, you know, we it cut back to her and, what was she doing? Was she crawling on the ground? Dude, yeah, man. I thought she was going to turn into like an animal. I didn't know what was that, but it was like degrading and humiliating for them to just pick her up and put her on the ground like that. And I feel like it, she was just like exemplifying all the other women that have been just shat upon in this fucking series. And she's down there and she starts crawling, like just like Cooper was crawling earlier, Dougie towards the electrical power uh, sockets. And she starts going out onto the stage. And I was like, is she going to morph into something? And this just on cue as the veil song was rocking, she just screamed screams and goes crazy and just yells at this like primal scream like symbolizing all that women have had enough in this series and that maybe that the mother's going to come fucking 
wreaking holy hell and getting revenge next episode. But it ended just like, bam. And it reminded me of like Lost Highway. I thought the Veil yeah. song, like the way they incorporated it. I thought it was a fucking great ending. Man. Well, there was even was the awesome. strobe lights on the stage when, you know, which was similar to the end of Lost Highway when, when Bill Pullman was changing with all those, you know, strange lights that are flickering while his face is morphing into presumably another identity. But I think that um, that particular character... And the other characters in the last couple of Roadhouse scenes are somehow tied into Audrey's narrative. Now, this could be like her, like on the ground, like waiting for someone, like maybe waiting to wake up or waiting, you know, for someone to help her, like maybe like a, a, a Prince Charming, a Cooper, and 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 then being like, you know, taken away and then crawling, like struggling, and then really having this 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 major struggle. Maybe it's an internal struggle, and then just really letting out this primal scream. Like maybe that's what Audrey needs to do to to wake up. And, and whatever she is, and we don't know if she is asleep, if she's in a coma, amnesia, in a dream state, we don't know. But I think it it's tied into to her narrative somehow. It's just, especially after the previous episode when all the two characters were talking about the same characters that, that Audrey was to Charlie in a previous episode. Well, it's also interesting to me. It seemed like they were wanting to sit in the special booth that everyone sits in, right? Like right. that was the booth. Right. Yeah. And so she was wanting to save the booth. And she said, she's waiting for someone. <laughs> and I still think we're all waiting for someone. So I was very interested. I thought it was a great scene. Um, and I think there was a lot of symbolism going on there in terms of, you know, everyone thinking that Lynch was just this horribly old, outdated, perverted, lecherous, misogynistic. But I think, man, I think they've got a method to their madness here. And I think we're getting some of the the, the other side of the shoe falling here. And showing uh, some of the, the the feminine rage uh, that's rightly so that's been been building up um, that may just burst uh, with the mother um, going crazy because especially when we see her like beeped into the her clip merging in with the jumping man earlier it makes me think that she's gonna be leveling her wrath on some people soon. Yeah, very well, maybe. I mean, I think we're gonna get this next episode. I mean, sixteen. This is the final one hour episode. I mean, well, I think that the final two. Or well, they're just putting them together. I don't know. It very well could be that it was meant to be like two hours bookended um, with the first two hours. I, I don't know. But, you know, for the viewers, we're only going to get one more hour before we get our final our uh, f- series finale, which which will be two hours. So, yeah, I'm I, for me, the big takeaway um, is the Dutchman's, the above the convenience store, the Sarah Palmer, like you said. Uh, face, you know, superimposed over the jumpy man and, and Judy, finally Judy. So that I'll be watching this episode many, many more times this week. And uh, I just, that scene was so incredible to finally get the above the convenience store scene, you know, from a different perspective and what we saw and that, that red diamond motel location from fire walk with me and all the cryptic clues and, uh, and, and, and little Dickie Horn and, and Mr. C riding off together into the night and what that might mean. So it was a great episode. And then really the, the final, final thought, the ballad of Big Ed and Norma and just how beautiful that is. I love that scene. I could play that scene on an endless loop. That might be on my deathbed. I might ask for, for that scene to play on a loop because to have Otis Redding on the soundtrack and to have that scene of, of pure like joy and then ultimate like, like, like immediate like heartbreak and disappointment and rejection, but then to get it all back again with that hand on the shoulder, to me, that is perfection and I love it. 
Yeah, it really was beautiful. And that was, a, you know, probably the big emotional high point as well. Like thinking of seeing Norma's hand, we've seen Bob's hand creep and appear out of the Glastonbury Grove creepily. We've seen some creepy hands and we saw a beautiful hand extend onto uh, Big Ed's arm of Norma. And it's just, it was love, man. And love is a uh, fight and fear, uh, you know, with the black and the white lodges. And that was uh, showing that love is enough in some people. Sometimes you have to wait 30 years or 40 years for it. So, uh, <laughs> anything else you got to say on this episode? Any other thoughts? No, we kind of ran kind of long. We'll save it for, I'll save it for the, uh, the preview for uh, later in the week. Right on. Well, it was a great episode. We are loving it. We're in the final stretch. Uh, we got three hours left and we'll keep coming uh, to you guys fast and furious with our podcast. We'll probably have one maybe Thursday or we do it Thursday. We'll, 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 we'll surprise you guys. But um, in the meantime, uh, you can send all your feedback, your ideas, your comments, all the, the thoughts uh, to our Twitter, Facebook, uh, chopping Gmail or chopping wood inside at gmail.com. Um, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict. Please give us five stars reviews. Until next time, thanks for listening.